0: Ladies and gentlemen, today we are joined by a very special guest, two-time Stanley Cup champion. The reason Max got all his Hawks gear on, Chris Versteeg. How are you doing, man? I'm
1: good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. How are you doing this winter? Keeping busy with kids hockey? Yeah, kids hockey's busier than pro hockey, so uh, <laughs> I've been very busy. Yeah. How many? Uh, how many of your young ones are playing now? I got two boys, one who's six and one who's seven. So, coaching both their teams. I've actually taken myself off the one bench for now um, because it, it is hard coaching your own kids. You're very critical of your kids. So I'm coaching the one right now, but still doing all the on-ice development of both of them. So it's, you know, I'm on the ice probably seven to eight hours a week.
0: Jeez. jeez, I know uh, I know you're in the Toronto area. That's when uh, the age
1: starts to get a little bit busy for the kids there. How many nights a week are they practicing or playing? So each so at the fifteen level, the twenty fifteen for my seven year old, he's on the ice three nights a week of development, and then one night a week for a game. Okay. And then same with the sixteen, they're on three days of development and one for game. Uh, and if we don't do a game, we're usually four nights a week of development. So it's a lot. It's a lot more than what I was used to as a kid. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: I'm. Uh coaching just single a uh, u11 there and like you said it's it's nonstop, it's around the clock but um, we've been uh, we've been checking out the clever app we'll talk about that in a little bit here project that you've been working on Um, but as i said max all decked out in the hawks gear we want to touch on uh, your stanley cup so i mean let's dive right into it here man 2010 walk us through that year that feeling you got to live out every canadian kid's dream of hoisting the stanley
1: cup yeah, 2010 was uh, 20, 2009, 2010 was an interesting year. I thought everything we did from 2007 leading up to that year made that year even extra special. I think a lot of people actually forget about how good we were and how much excitement there was around that actual 08, 09 season because when we lost to the Detroit Red Wings in the Western Conference Finals, No one thought we could make it there. We're generally underdog in the Vancouver and the Calgary series. We came out on top and I thought we gave Detroit a good series. Went to uh, overtime, I think three of the five games, they were the better team. They hundred percent should have moved on to the finals, but that year really gave us a taste of what it was like and where we had to go in order to win. So all the year throughout 2009, we started to prep, you know, as we went on every game, you know, like let's. Let's start to build at the start of the year with our confidence. Let's start to find the structure we're gonna play. Let's start to rely on each other and lean on each other to be better and push each other. And that's what that team did better than any other team I've ever played with is we pushed each other and we didn't care how your feelings were that day. If you if you weren't coming to work in the sense of, you know if you were just messing around during practice or in a game, if you weren't executing a play, a guy would go up to you and say, hey, wake up, get it done, right? And that's the level of accountability we had. And that's what made us so special is guys would walk up to anyone. Um, You know, Andrew Loud would walk up to Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taze and tell him to wake up. Right. It it was just a special group of guys that, you know, loved each other and held each other insanely accountable. And um, as I went on in my career, you've seen the level of accountability change just based on the new player and the new age of athlete. But That team had that and we built it throughout the year we had a we had a like first round series against nashville where we could have faltered really easily but again we we stuck to it we went shorthanded in game five tied it up with a minute left or 50 seconds left killed off a five minute penalty and then host comes out of the box to score right like those are the type of moments that like i look back that moment won us the stanley cup in the first round and that's that's the type of level of accountability we had right like Hosta took it on himself to score the goal after taking a dumb penalty and it's just crazy that uh, that happened but I think all the preparation throughout those two years made that all possible
0: yeah yeah Matt?
2: Well, yeah I, uh, obviously the the big goal obviously was Hosta to get you there but obviously Kane's goal is going to be remembered for all time yeah. uh kind of Obviously, what were you thinking watching that play, watching that whole thing develop, and what was the feeling once they did find out it was in, I guess, and did you know right away?
1: Well, so the the feeling I felt when the goal went in for the Stanley Cup was almost the same feeling I felt when Kane scored that goal shorthanded with a minute left against Nashville. You know, it's just, it's a feeling you just can't replicate unless you're in that type of atmosphere, in an intense moment, in a game or something that means that much to you. Um, that is that unpredictable. And I mean, I may never have those moments again, unless, you know, your kids or people that, you know, close to you, give you that type of feeling again. So um, when I found out it was in, what was happening was we were looking at our bench to see if we were going to get the okay that it was in. So we did get that. Okay. We got the okay that it was in from the bench. We all started to celebrate. So that was like, Oh my goodness, please be in because if it isn't, we're screwed. We got to go put our gloves back on and play Game was guaranteeing it was in and obviously it was. I also looked down the ice and I saw the ref grab the puck. 100% still to this day I know the ref grabbed the puck. They say he he didn't, some say he didn't, but there's a picture of him actually skating away with the puck in his hand. And I know 100% we saw him grab the puck out of the net. So that's when it was also like, oh, he just, he picked it out of the padding, right? sure sure yeah no that was a wild moment and i
0: really like what we said about the the respect and the accountability there uh within the team and, and the group that you guys had over the years but i mean you must have had respect for the flyers and i mean the canucks too like those series i think you guys had the canucks back-to-back years those were absolute dogfights the flyers i mean they were stacked with richards carter pronger briere like what do you remember about those series
1: and just how much of a grind they were well they were war um literally no way else to put it if you had your your forearm exposed you were going to lose your forearm from a slash from pronger or shane o'brien or any of those guys on the on the vancouver uh side um the games were combative you were in everyone's face every shift you couldn't skate by a bench ours or theirs without getting chirped uh the energy was insane, whether it be just leaving our hotel in Vancouver and there being five, 600 fans outside our bus screaming at us, you know, trying to throw things at us. It was nuts, right? It was just like, just getting on the bus, getting to the game was crazy. And then when you got in the game, the warmups were crazy, people going nuts and the games kind of lived up to the hype, right? You got crazy games, you got crazy performances, not only on our part, but in their part as well, you know, whether it be the Flyers or the Canucks, they had guys that stepped up and played amazing as well. So I just thought the series really created a rivalry that carried obviously throughout the regular season. And then I wasn't a part of that 2011 series. And I'm pretty sure if we had our full team in 2011, they don't, the Canucks don't win almost hundred percent sure, but um, we're not going to go there Canuck fans. Um, but again, it was just everything built up to those, those playoff series and and they lived up to it again. They never went to seven games besides 2011, which I wasn't a part of, but the games were just so highly combative, like, you know, back and forth action, big goals, big moments, guys hitting. Um, like I said, if if you didn't have your head up anywhere on the ice, again, the game was different in those days. Like if you had your head down, you were literally gonna lose it, right? Like someone was coming to hit you, they didn't care where they were coming to hit you and you wouldn't have left the building basically. You would have left on a stretcher if you, if you didn't have your head up and that's just how the game was. It's not like that anymore, thank God but that's just how it was. You had to be a hundred percent aware a hundred percent of the time. And that's what I just tell people. It wasn't so much the skill then isn't as good as it is now because the game didn't allow that to happen then as it does now. But I, I try to explain it to people. If you let your guard down for one second, you would have literally left probably on a stretcher. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well said.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, and then obviously there's, you know, talk about Dave's leadership over the years, how it's grown, how it's it's been good, bad at some points. Um, how in your eyes did it grow throughout the years from when he was younger and first took over as captain? And then obviously Seabrook got over the box at that point in the playoffs. Um, and like you said before, everybody held, holds everybody accountable. And how does that change and how does it change you as a player?
1: Well, it's changed. Well, first off, you have a lot of alphas in one room, right? It's it's hard, right, to know. And and I think that's why it was good, right? You see in 2013, again, I wasn't a part of the team. Seabrook goes over to Taze and he doesn't care. He settles them down. He tells them to calm down and stop taking stupid penalties, take a breather. And it kind of sets the change and the mood for that entire series. They end up winning and winning in the Stanley Cup finals. The way Taze evolved as a leader is just each and every year, first and foremost, Taze cares about people first. Um, again, there's there, you can always go back and look at over the course of his career, how he's answered questions and how he's answered things. And you can question those, but me as knowing him as a person and how much he cares about people, I'll never answer this question differently. He cares about everyone, everyone, no matter who you are genuinely. And that's why he's one of the greatest leaders, because the first time, no matter who you are, if you're a fourth liner, healthy scratch, anyone, when you walk into the room, he introduces himself. He gets to know you. He wants to know about you. And when you're on the ice, he's going to, you know, he's going to hold you accountable. He's going to ask you to play better and do things that you're uncomfortable to do. Not in the sense of block a shot with your face, but Hey, chip the puck out, get the shot done. You know, like, let's get this done. And he just takes a genuine interest in people. Again, as his game evolved over, as he got older, um, he just found ways to be clutch. And so again, when you're looking at leadership, he wasn't just leading with a C on his Jersey he just led in clutch moments. And between him and Kane, I've never met two more clutch individuals in my life. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good attribute to have. That's one I wish I had in the bag there. Clutch. Yeah, at um, times maybe for me too. You know, you're like, man. Yeah. I- <laughs>
0: And you touched on it there that you weren't around for the 2011 season. You came over to uh, to my team instead of Max, the Leafs there. Were you surprised when you got shipped over there? Obviously, Ladd, Bufflin, Sopel, a bunch of guys had to uh, kind of cap casualties there as the cap didn't go up. But um, what was that memory like getting traded over to Toronto?
1: Yeah, so it was about three days before, I think it was Canada Day, roughly. Yeah. Um, three days before I was getting the Stanley Cup for my one day with the cup. So, uh, I got a call from Stan Bowman. He told me I was likely to be traded. These were a couple teams and possibilities. We had talked about two weeks prior to that, at the cup raid. he told me, you know, we're going to have to move you due to, um, cap issues. Actually, Vince Vaughn, me and Stan Bowman, were all sitting there when he told me and Vince Vaughn was like, you know, as Vince Vaughn does I was like, no, no, you can't trade him. You know, you can't let it just happen. It was pretty funny, but that was, uh, that was after we won. And so I knew it was coming. Uh, You know Brian Burke calls me. I remember getting my first call from Brian Burke, and just the voice and the presence he had on a phone. Um, You, 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 I mean, I looked up to him in a sense as just a listener for so many years in Canada, listening to him with the Canucks and all these teams. Having him talk your name on the phone was really strange to me. I remember he's like, Hey, Chris, how's it going? You're having a conversation with Brian Burke. So that was one thing that stuck out to me and then getting to meet him as a person and how much he really cares about you as a person. So I've always loved Burke, even though he traded me um, three quarters of the way through that season, he brought me back to Calgary and uh, he's been nothing but amazing to me. And he's a great guy. And I, and I really, really thank him for all that, but the Toronto team in itself, we weren't great. Um, So I think that was hard to get traded from such a powerhouse to a team that's trying to rebuild. we were playing pretty good. We we're still only probably five, six points out of the playoffs, but you know, you're on the ice and Agos are flying around and people are wearing bags on their heads and you are like, what's going on. And you know, people, I heard when people traded for me, they're like, Oh, we got like a Doug Gilmore kind of player, but he's not near as good. But, and then they think they get that type of player and then they get Doug Glatt. you know, I got like <laughs> one point in my first 10 games and they're probably like, who is this plug? You know, he's terrible. So you know, people are spitting on my car, whatever it was, it was an interesting time. And then, and then they're talking about me complaining about my car getting spit on, on TV. Right. So I'm like, what, like, what is going on right now? You go from winning the cup to all this melee, you know? So it was, it was a lot of, uh, I guess I was in a blender basically for yeah. my month. And then I started to figure it out. And then I went on, I had about 33 points in my next 35 games in in the Leafs uniform, So I got on a heater. They put me on the point on the power play. I was playing good. And then kind of at that moment, we were like four or five points out. Burke said we're going to have to probably trade you. We need to get first round picks back. They lost first rounders because of Kessel and a few others. So again, they traded me, Caberlet, and um, I think it was Beauchemin. So they made those trades at the time and acquired some picks back. I think they got two or three first rounders the following season with Biggs and Percy and those guys, but um yeah it was just it was a whirlwind to be honest and I loved my time in Toronto again it, it stunk because we weren't that good um you I wish I could have played on the Leafs what they were like today you sure. know when one of the best teams um but yeah it was it was tough with your with an ego hit I would say that
0: Yeah, no doubt. No, Toronto's uh, great when you're great and awful when you're awful. Um, Those first round picks didn't quite work out for Berkey and the guys there. Um, But uh, I think some of his uh, truculence carried over to you there in Toronto. One of my main memories of you as a a young Leafs fan was uh, your Gordie Howe Hattie there against uh, the Senators. I think it was one of your first games, I think you scrapped uh, Mike Fisher. What, uh, What was that moment like?
1: I think it was like my second game. It was hockey night in Canada. I had a goal assist leading into it. I think they thought that, so the goal was a tip in actually. And uh-huh. then I, they didn't give me the goal initially. They went back and gave it to me. I think in the second period I chiseled it. But anyways, they, uh, I was like, yeah, it hit me. Um, but anyway, so I had a goal and assist and going into the third period, I wasn't thinking about a fight or anything, but I was, I had the puck. I was going by Fisher and he elbowed me right in the head, like clean in the head. And then I turned around and just two hand chopped him. And then within a second, he had his gloves off and then mine were off. And I just remember him grabbing me like this guy's a man. He is he's like a dad playing with a son right now. I mean <laughs> holding my hands together. And and then I remember I threw one and I kind of popped his helmet off. I think he was kind of shocked that I caught him with one. And then I remember thinking, if he catches me with one, I'm going to die. Like, he's going to bury me. here. So I swung another one, and then he just kind of grabbed me and put me together and threw a couple less. And then I can't remember if I fell down or the rest came in. But at my time, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get a Gordy. Howe. It was more just I got forearm shivered right in the head, and I laid a chop, and then we were just going –
0: yeah, no, that's uh, that's exactly what I remember. Like you said, Hockey Night in Canada, so it gets talked about right through till next Saturday. New edition, Chris Versteegs dropping the gloves
2: already, Brian Burke hockey. Um, Mac, what do you got there? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it before you got traded to Philly later that season. Uh, obviously, you beat them in the finals a year earlier. Was there any weird conversations going in the room after that?
1: With Philadelphia? Yeah. Yeah, so going to Philadelphia was strange um you know you play them in the stanley cup finals the year before you're you're battling them for six games you can kind of feel a little bit you know you feel it in the room like you know you're in a room that was so close to winning the stanley cup but you ended up winning and they didn't right so there's there's a little bit of for me not for them they were all amazing to me the guys are amazing the coaching staff everything There's just i felt like you know when i got there it was just a little strange I also didn't get fully accustomed to the system. Like they, they wanted me to play third line with Richards. And then some days I'd be on the power play some days I wouldn't, you know? So again, me coming in personally, I think threw things a little off kilter uh, because there were guys like Billy Leno who were second power play unit guys. If I would go on the power play, he'd come off and then I'm sure he'd be pissed off. I'm not going to quote him on that, but I'm sure it happened because I would be too. So when you're trading for guys that demand ice time and they they take up a hole, especially me at that point in my career, I'm sure some guys, they get pissed off again. They're going to lose their ice time and, and they're going to be challenged for it. So for me going in there, it was like, okay, you know, I'll play power play today. I don't play it tomorrow. I play my 12, 13 minutes. I was used to playing in the cup finals year before 18, 19, 20 minutes, right? Now I'm playing like 13 minutes, 14 minutes, not playing power play, not playing PK. I'm like, this is kind of... It wasn't good, you know, and then the Philly fans get on you and they want to expect all these things. I'm like, I basically got a half a point a game playing 13 minutes a night, right? So, but they don't see that. They just see the first round pick go out the window and then that's all they look at and that's all they expect. So, it was a tough time in a couple ways for me. Just again, the ice time wasn't there, the opportunity, and then you felt bad because some guys worked hard all season and then maybe you were taking it away from them. So, it was a bit of a, a funny situation, but At the end of the year, Paul Holmgren um, asked me, I remember him asking me, was, why, you know, why aren't you scoring more? I'm like, you got to put me on the power play to score, Paul. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like, what do you want me to do? You know, so two months later, I got called. Richards and Carter were just traded and then they were trying to bring in Yager and the way the story goes is I was called that Yager was between Florida and Philly and Philly and Florida uh, did a deal, obviously a second and a third for me, but Philly and Florida talked about not bidding up Yager in order to uh, agree on a deal to move me out. So the same cap space, Yager signed for $3 million or something like that, and I was $3 million, So they moved me out to fill that Yager cap space. So that's kind of the way it went. Florida and them were kind of like bidding between each other for Yager Philly wanted him more, but they had to move me out. So that's what happened. I got moved out. Yager got moved in. I went to Florida. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Mac?
2: Yeah, and obviously later that year in Philly, you guys lost to the Bruins in the second round. It was kind of a grind that series as well. Was it? Did it remind you
1: of any of those Vancouver series back in the back in the Chicago days? It was tough. Yeah, it was a tough, hard fought, short series. They dominated us. You know, we didn't have Pronger in the series um I think Carl might have been hurt a bit too our goaltending wasn't great um and we were just we we were all sorts out of kilter like we weren't on like we weren't on it at all I didn't think um and the Bruins you know they lost the year before in that weird series to the Flyers that let the Flyers go to the Cup so they just had extra juice they had way more extra juice they had all their guys healthy and they were a well-oiled machine I, I don't think we were beating them if we had Pronger and our goaltending was settled and you know, everyone was healthy and going, we could, we could give them a good series. But at that time the Bruins were just too well oiled of a machine and we weren't, we weren't firing on all cylinders at all. Sure, sure. And you touched
0: on Florida there. I mean, when you look back at the roster from that year in Florida now, like it's a, it's a funny group of guys. Cause you got some younger ones, you got some older veterans, some uh, all-time guys like Joe Vanofsky there. What, uh, what was the room like in Florida? How different was that situation from
1: the others? Yeah. Florida was great. I remember, it was right before the playoffs. Kelly Chase called us all a bunch of bums. You know, he's like, how do these bunch of bums make the playoffs? And, you know, uh, New Jersey's going to sweep them. Because we ended up winning the, the Southwest. Or what yeah. was it? Southwest division? Like, we won the pennant that year. Yeah. No one even had us making the playoffs. So we go from, you know, a bunch of guys just thrown together on a team to winning the pennant to going to double overtime game seven against New Jersey, who went to the cup finals that oh. year. You know, so it was, a, it was a fun year for me in the sense of I was going great. I had about 48 points in 46 games. I remember going wide on George's and he hit me. And when I was on my knees, he hit me again. And my right leg moved in and I felt something go wrong in my hip. So I got it x-rayed and they found out that my hip had torn. I tried to play another game. I couldn't play. I then ended up taking three weeks off to rehab uh, and do some stuff to help it. Uh, it didn't really end up helping. I played the last... You know, twenty or thirty games. I think I ended up playing like seventy games that year, and uh, just wasn't the same. But before playoffs, obviously, um, you know, you get some help to make it feel a little bit better. And then uh, I played pretty good in the playoffs, but after that, I had to get surgery, and then uh, I got hip surgery. Came out of hip surgery, it was the lockout, and tore my knee like ten games in. So, or, yeah, eight or ten games in, I can't remember. Had ACL surgery. And then they ended up moving me on uh, to Chicago, basically soon after that. But it was just—it was an amazing start. It was a great season, and it was a great bunch of guys. I went to that playoff series, and that—that's one of my most memorable years. You know, just a bunch of guys that were underdogs that all made the playoffs and did a great job. But then obviously the injuries kicked in, and um, pretty much the rest is history. After that, I—I I was basically just a band aid. Uh, like
2: you said, you went back to Chicago after that, and obviously we're. Happy to get you back because that team was looking great. Obviously made the Western Conference final against LA. They went on to win the cup. Uh, How'd you guys feel about your shot that year? And then obviously kind of run it back the next year after that.
1: I think every year I was in Chicago, you felt you could win. You just didn't know that year. I wasn't in form at all. Again, I had, I came off hip and ACL surgery. They traded for me. Um, I came back to play five minutes after ACL or five months, sorry, after ACL, I wasn't ready to play. They traded me 18 games in and I remember getting to Chicago. They thought they were getting the guy that left and they definitely didn't. So it was hard. You know, you come back, you're playing 12, 10, 13 minutes a night. You're spotted in on the power play. You left, you were playing PP you know, on a Stanley Cup winning team. So again, it'd been a couple of years of injuries um, and issues with that. So um, I didn't play that good that year. I personally, that year... Wish I could have gave 10, 15, 20% more because it, maybe that puts us over the top against L.A. If I could have helped out a little bit, I didn't help out at all. I was terrible. So uh, that year, I think, you know, we were... I, they could have ended us, I think, in game five. Could they not have? I think L.A.? So. I think so. And we ended up extending it somehow to game seven. Uh, and then it obviously goes to overtime. They get the bounce. It goes in. But again, guys like me, I wish I could have gave 5, 10, 15% more. I just I had nothing to give. I was a shell of myself. But that next year, put some work in and really came back in great shape. I got my step back and I was playing good and, you know, things were going great. Had almost a point a game leading up to the New Year game. It was, uh, I took a shot from Eric Fair and broke my hand and then I was out for two and a half months. So it was a bit of a, again, it was about five years of a roller coaster. You're going, finally you get back. You're at, you know, at a clip that you think you should be playing at. Boom, you break your hand, you're out two months. So um again team wise I felt we were good personally I didn't know where I was at came back I was down in the lineup again I wasn't playing with Kane and Richards like I was when I left yeah and if you're trying to find your game you get in the playoffs I'm not playing great in the playoffs really until the cup finals is where I started to play my best but um yeah it was personally it was hard finding my game but I was just happy the guys were playing great and, and they carried it all the way through
0: yeah, that's interesting. And like you said, your role definitely changed. But really, when I look at the the notes here over your five, six years, there it seems like every year you uh, were either on the cup winning team or lost to the team that went on to win it there. What was that? Uh, what was that second cup like in comparison? I mean, um, in terms of knowing what it takes to win versus like you said, your role changed a bit. It's a whole new group of guys because Chicago had to retool every year. What are the differences? What stands out from that second one?
1: Well, there's just guys that you never thought could step up did, like Andrew Desjardins. Like, do you even know the guy's name? I mean, he came and he played a pretty big role at big times, and and that's what Q does. He relies on certain guys and gives them an important role and makes them feel good at important times, and then sometimes it elevates their play. Uh, it's hard to sustain because he again, he's not like a top player, but he came in playing top game at top time, and you know Andrew Shaw had a decent series. Marcus Kruger. There's a lot of guys that stepped up at good times. And then when you get into the cup finals, um, you know, I said, or Antoine Vermette scores a couple game winners. I set him up on the one in game five. So just like guys stepping up at good times, not only the top guys being the top at the, like, you know, game six, King goes out, puts it away with Duncan Keith. But again, those role guys coming in at certain times when they're needed the most and coming through Marcus Kruger, I think scored the game seven winner against, is it Anaheim? You know, I I can't remember. So there's, just a lot of guys that came through at clutch times in that year.
2: Yeah, and then obviously the first time you won it was on the road. Um second time is back at home. I've been to a few games down there obviously from Ontario it's tougher to get down. Um but even just a home opener like the
1: the anthem at the United Center is
2: unbelievable. How was it in the playoffs and, and especially winning the cup there?
1: Yeah. 2015 is, it was magical, right? You're, you're hoisting the Stanley cup on United center ice in front of people, friends and family. It was uh, it was really a magical moment. It was amazing still, when I talk about the loudest I've ever heard the building, that was 2009 Stanley cup playoffs. I don't know if it's cause you know, the, the, the fan, the type of fan changed. It was still somewhat affordable in 2009, you know, 2008, nine for tickets. And then by 10, it was like $2,000 a seat sometimes in the lower bowl. So, I think the fan type of change, the kind of fan changed, but you know, that 2015 cup win was, was incredible. Just the feeling in the building, the cups there, you can win it on home ice. Uh, Similar though. It's still similar in Philadelphia. You're on the road, but that when the cups in the building, you get this weird anxiety you've never felt before. Almost like an anxiety, like, Oh God. And it was worse the first time than the second. Like if we don't win tonight and then we go home and we don't win tomorrow, I'll never be able to, Live like you almost feel like that. You feel like your whole life's on the line for you know you've put everything on the line to be in these moments. So that's how I felt, anyways. Maybe other guys don't, but I was I had a weird anxiety like going to bed that night, like the cups in the building. If we don't win, and then we don't win again, you start to think crazy. So it's like you got you really got to focus on getting those thoughts out of your head. Um, so again, that that was a little different the first time, but yeah, still bringing it home and being in front of friends and family was was amazing.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I wanted to ask, I mean, you played with, uh, you touched on them there earlier, two of the more mythical creatures around the league, Patrick Kane and Dustin Bufflin, any uh, podcast
1: eligible stories you can share about the character of those guys? Well, oh, they were, they were great. Painter was always, well, again, everyone always thinks Kaner was just a character, but Kaner was a guy that worked harder than anybody on the ice. He would be on there 30 minutes before working on his skill, 30 minutes after. I would call him in June after we'd play till the Western conference finals. Like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just heading to the ice. I'm like, what? He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, my bag's like (laughs) hidden in the garage. I'm not looking at it for like two months, you know? And he's back on the ice working on his skills. So Kaner is just a guy that put in about a bunch of time buff, uh, buff's one of the funniest guys you'd be going out to the ice sometimes for whether it be a game or pregame skate or whatever it is. And all of a sudden your stick, you'd get out there and be like, why does my stick have no tape on it? He would just go buy, buy guys sticks, grab them and rip the tape off it. You know, just, just like, or he'd write stuff on it or anything. Right. You just mess around all the time. So I'd be like, dude, if you're messing around, stop pulling my tape off right before I'm heading onto the ice for a game. Like I, you know, and he'd think it's hilarious. He wouldn't see any problem with it, but that was Buff's personality. And, you know, he was a, he was an integral part of a, a team and, and keeping things light and always having fun with the moment. But he also did get serious when it mattered the most, but that was buff. He just would mess with you at all, all time, anytime.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I did want to take it back to junior as well. All of us being uh, Canadian kids here, we know about the importance of junior hockey in small towns. You grew up in Lethbridge, you got to play for Lethbridge. That must have been a pretty special feeling
1: growing up uh, getting to put on the jersey that you watched. Yeah. When I, when I talk about when I was a kid, so say my kid's age, I never thought of playing in the NHL. I didn't even think that was possible. The only thing I saw was rock them, sock em. You know, yeah. you'd see the odd highlight every hour because you'd have to wait 30 minutes minimum to see the highlight. And then you'd have to wait an hour again for the news cycle to come through with the highlights. So the NHL to me wasn't, wasn't the dream. The dream was the WHL. So I would wake up every day. My friend had a couple of hurricanes that lived at the house. I am, or, I loved them. This guy's name was Todd McIsaac. Don't even, never met the guy since then, but he's the reason I chose number 10 as a kid my whole yeah. life because of Todd McIsaac. Don't know where he is today. Don't know what he's doing. But he, uh, he would also play mini sticks with me downstairs. He'd come out and play on the street. And these are the guys I, I idolized. And those are the guys I wanted to be. So I remember playing, you know, my first game as a Lethbridge Hurricane. I remember scoring my first goal against the Moose Jaw Warriors as a Lethbridge Hurricane. I remember looking up in the stand, seeing my friends watching me as a hurricane, calling them, saying, Hey, did I look out of place? Do I look like a hurricane? And they'd be like, No, you're still a little small and you're still not as fast, but you're you're doing okay, you know. So I'd always try to call my buddies to see how I was doing and and, and what I looked like to them. But that to me was was making it, you know, and the NHL was just far away land. Yeah, definitely, definitely, Mac.
2: Yeah, and then obviously we ended up in Red Deer playing under Brent Sutter. I mean, he's quite the coach, got quite the history of being the coach, uh, obviously with Team Canada and beyond. Uh, what was it like playing for him back in the day?
1: Brent was great. He was hard on me. I remember we had one meeting and he brought me in and, well, it was the team meeting and he was showing – I was playing defense at this time, right? So he went away for Team Canada and the Dallas gone. The assistant coach asked if anyone had played defense because we had 3D get hurt in one game in Moose Jaw. And I said, I played D for like six years in roller hockey. So why not? So they put me on D. Brent came back. He really liked me as a D. And there's this one game where he came back from uh, Canada. I think it was in January sometime. I made an outlet pass. I hopped up in the play and the play started coming back in our zone. And this is in the VHS, right? So he puts the VHS and shows me. And he goes, tell me when you come back into the screen, right? So the play goes back in. And it takes like 10 seconds for me to get back in the screen, right? And he's like, You're a defenseman, you're a defenseman. You should be the first guy back. You should be you know, so I still tell everyone that that, you know, him popping in the VHS and showing me my shifts about how terrible I was at defense, which you know, and then he helped me get better at defense. And by the end of the year, he actually really liked me in that position. Um, and he wanted me to stay as a 20 and, and keep progressing as a D-man. I ended up moving on to the AHL and going back to forward, but Brent was a guy that challenged me every night. He made me look at the game a little differently. Um, I remember he would make me sit in front of the net 30, 40 minutes after, because he didn't think I hit the net enough, right? I would sit after practice 30 minutes, just shooting until I hit the net, like for 30 minutes straight, literally just sitting there. And he'd be like, hit the net. You don't hit the net enough. Hit it until you make it, you know, 30 minutes, you know? So just a lot of things where I needed that type of uh, style. It's hard but it's love. He definitely comes from a good place. I think everyone sees like the Sutters as these hard asses that don't give a shit. They actually are very caring people. And I've known Rich and Ron since I was a kid. I used to go to their hockey school at five and I bought the hockey school uh, 14 years ago, actually now. So I've known them for a long time and he was hard on me, uh, very hard, but it was, he helped me see the game a different way. And, and, and Brent was, you know, I, I wasn't easy to be around at that time. I didn't really, I liked partying and doing other things more than playing hockey, I think, in those days. Um, but he he was the one who gave me a talking to at the end of that year, basically saying, you you are the best player when you're on and you are my worst player when you're not. And he goes, it's going to be up to you to figure out how to make it work in your life. And obviously, I took that to heart. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And like you said, before that point,
0: you're probably not thinking about the NHL, right? Like, us, no. us Canadian kids, we look at the local junior team and that's what
1: we want to do. We want to go to the school that they did, wear the jersey and that's it. Yeah. And I got drafted. And at that time though, I was playing D playing in red deer, you know, partying with my buddies, not really thinking that the NHL wasn't even possible anymore. I kind of heard Boston was done with me and that's what they told my agent anyways. Hmm. And then what happened was someone in the AHL got hurt and they needed a guy to come up at the end of the season. So they gave me a call and they're like, Hey, would you come back up? we're going to put you back on forward. And then, you know, right before I went there is a little bit, you know, when, when Brent gave me that talk. And so from there on is where I truly committed to the game, like truly, truly committed to hockey.
0: Okay, okay. Um, our uh, our third co-host Tyler couldn't be here today. He works for uh, SiriusXM NHL. He's just a stats DGen knows every random league, every random player. He texted me, he wanted me to ask you about Colton Yellowhorn. Said you played yeah. with him in junior, you played with him in Slovakia. He said if you look up this guy's stat page, he's led the league in scoring in every random
1: league in Europe. Well, he still is. He's still top five in scoring in, in England. And I don't think he put on his skates from the end of April till September. And then he shows up in England and he's the top five scored. He is the most naturally gifted hockey player I grew up with and have seen in my entire life. He's like Matt Zuccarello, just, you know, five to 10 years older. And he came at a time where it was hard on him. And, uh, you know, he, Colton is one of the best guys um That I know, but you know he had a hard he had a hard upbringing playing hockey, right? And he was unfairly looked at at times. And 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 I love Colton, and and, but everything he went through now, if he was coming up in today's game, I think he would be a bona fide first rounder. You know, a guy that would make the NHL and could commit to it. But you know, some things didn't let that happen, and I, I don't need to get into those. But he was a guy that you know. Most talented and gifted person I've ever naturally seen in my life. He's five foot seven, 210 pounds naturally, strong as an ox, gifted, can score, can shoot. And we'd be, he always played as an over or underage. So I'd be a year older than him. He'd come out and lay me out. I'd be like 12 years old. He'd come and lay me out, take the puck, go end to end and score. Like this guy was incredible. And uh, it's just, you know, it's sad to see some guys that they don't make it. Um, sometimes he got in his own way, but there were there were some circumstances that screwed him over. And uh I just I wish all the best for him. He is a brother to me. Me and him are literally brothers. Like we do everything together.
0: That's awesome. I'm glad I asked. I'm glad Tyler spends so long on Elite Prospects then, because that's a fun one that I want to have known. Mac, what else do you got?
2: Yeah, I just want to lighten things up a little bit. Obviously, I follow along with you because you're a Blackhawks player um you kind of got into fights with some chip companies on your instagram uh which was pretty hilarious just talk to talk us
1: through that a little bit old dutch chips i don't know who their marketing team is but they're terrible you know they have one of the best chips going and they only send half the good flavors to ontario and the other half go to western canada and then half the time they don't even have their shelves stocked i'm like who's working at old dutch like what's going on they got the best quality chip they got the best flavors but they just got the worst, worst delivery service and marketing team. Like the, even just marketing in general, it's just like, dude, like let's get our chips out there or send me something. They, they sent me some free stuff, but it, like, it's like, whatever, like make sure your shelves are stocked. We need more chip flavors out here in Ontario. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> trying to
0: do this for the people,
1: not yourself. No, I'm like, I'm not making any money from old Dutch. Just get your chips out here. There's nothing on the shelf and get your good flavors. Like I'm trying to tell all my friends to go to the store to buy the mech. They're the Mexican chili flavor. There's none in Ontario. You have to get them in Alberta.
0: I was so going to say, I've never, never even seen those.
1: No. They must have said people in Ontario aren't buying the Mexican chili or the other flavors. I think, uh, what's another one? Dill pickle. They don't have <laughs> dill pickle out here. Old Dutch doesn't have dill pickle. I'm like, how do you not have dill pickle? Like that's, that's my go-to. I need dill pickle. Yeah, it's one of the top chips, you know? And they just, they don't bring some of the good flavors out here. I don't get it.
0: Old Dutch, figure it out. Old Dutch, figure it out. But yeah, we uh, we mentioned it off the hop here, Steger. We wanted to touch on your app as well, Clever. It's uh, an app for coach players, families, et cetera. I'll let you kind of walk us through what the goal is there and what you've been up to.
1: Yeah. So uh, Clever is an athletic platform that basically lets anybody gain an edge. So whether you're an athlete, parent or coach, that's what it gives you. It's it's uh, So as a coach, what you can do now is Way it started is kids and and parents were trying to send me clips. They wanted me to teach the clip and send it back, but there was no platform that allowed that to happen all in one place. So now in Clever, you could have a parent, um, you can have an athlete or a coach send you a clip, whether it be in sport or fitness, they could pull it up, draw on it, voice it over. They could pull up two clips at one time, whatever it may be, voice it over, draw on it and share it back. So that's what we've done is we've streamlined that clip edit share process all in one platform. And basically what used to take an hour to do, you can do in two minutes. Like someone could send you a teach it and send it back. And that's what clever is. And um, yeah, we've got a lot of cool tools in there. We've got digital whiteboards. So now coaches, instead of having to go on drill sharing sites or anything like that and create it on desktop, that takes about an hour to create like five or six drills. You could just literally pull up the hockey whiteboard, hit record, draw your entire practice, voice it over and send it out to your athletes and coaches. So it's way more interactive than the desktop versions and it's free. So um, that's the thing. And, and I use it every day with my academy. I use it because I overlook different age groups and I got to send drills out to other coaches and I got to send it. So the digital whiteboards are great. And then we got other cool features coming, line combination features and, and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's a long time coming. Uh, startup life is different. Trying to raise capital in order to fund the project and make sure that everyone can get it and, and get it to the place where we need it to be. And it's coming, and it's been uh, it's been an incredible experience. But basically, it all started with a problem, and and that's us streamlining video sharing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And like I said, I've used Clever a little bit with my uh, team there as well. I think the biggest thing for me, it's it's intuitive, it's user-friendly, it's easy to do, right? Like you said, there's yeah. not six different programs on your computer. You don't have to sit down for an hour or two. And the biggest thing with kids these days is they're such visual learners that being able to show them exactly what they're doing, it doesn't matter if it's single A, triple A, five years old, 15 years old. And I think the other thing um, that I, I've seen you
1: touch on before is it's not just hockey. It's every sport, right? it's everything we have nine well it was eight before nine different sports on the platform we have fitness on the platform because you know there might be a trainer in toronto and they have a guy in miami or a girl in miami and they need to know how to do the squat properly they could take the clips and to the trainer in toronto they could teach it and send it back right it's literally for everything and we've seen it used for construction whale watching a lot of different things like our camera function and feature it's actually pretty funny um, when you create a product and you see it used across different um pieces. So I I mean I could see clever used for many things and 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 a lot of things. But like you said, kids are visual learners and how you know they would rather take information through their phone now than you face to face. So with my kids, when we're doing teaching, a lot of things now is I'll take a clip of an issue on the ice. I won't spend time correcting it on the ice. I'll get home, pull it up, voice it over, and send it to the parent for the kid to watch because they're going to retain that information better than me even on the ice being like, hey, try this, this, and this. Because the kids, there's so much going on they can't comprehend a lot of it. So that's how we use it with Clever, our academies, a lot of our partners now is they take the clip and they teach it later at night and they share it. They used to be scared to do that because that process took so long, but now they could just literally pull it up, draw on it, voice it over, and send it off, right? So um, it it literally helps get the information into the kids faster so they can retain it better. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, check it out, guys. Clever, free app
0: on the App Store. Super beneficial. Like I said, I've been using it with my kids for a bit here. Um, that does lead me into another question, not to get too far off track, but did you play multiple sports growing up or just hockey?
1: Yeah, so... So actually, I started a league now. It's the Clever Super League, and uh, that's for Tier 1, Tier 2, U7, U8, U9. Uh, it, it, is, it is coming out in 23, 24, and the Clever Young Kings is my academy. And at the academy, and we will at the league as well, stress multi-sport. Um, whether it be in-season multi-sport, like my son plays at a soccer academy and plays hockey at the same time. Obviously, it's lighter in the winter with soccer and, and heavier in the summer with soccer. But with the academy, we stress multi-sport, right? You gotta do soccer. If you can't do soccer, you gotta do baseball, you gotta do lacrosse. Something to do that gives you different skills, techniques, teammates, coaching, whatever it may be. And again, uh, the same thing with the Clever Super League, we'll be stressing uh, multi-sport that's awesome that's
0: great to hear I think that's honestly the the hill that I always like to die on with athletes and especially like I said kids that I'm coaching to play multiple sports and they're all in the app there you can check it out but yeah I mean I'm a nobody when it comes to playing but I got my hand eye from baseball you get your vision from soccer you get different things from different sports right and you piece it all together and that's how you make the best athletes overall right
1: 100 percent and You know, the game has changed. There is more specializing at a young age because kids are on the ice a lot more, a lot younger. Um, But I look back, you know, I would, everyone's like, oh, who's your skills coach or skating coach? I'm like, well, you know, in today's game, I probably would have a skating coach. I never had a skating coach. I never had a skills coach. My dad's like, go outside, take this tennis ball and work as hard as you can. Figure out, get creative and come up with things. And that's what I did. I'd be out on the street for three, four, five hours a day stick handling a tennis ball, picking it up, thinking of new moves, thinking, mastering new moves, going through like, okay, this is a deke I want to do. Let's work on it like 50 times until I get it right. Just with the tennis ball Yep. Oh, and and an orange ball or whatever it may be. And so that's what I did is I would, I would go out and I'd work on things and repetition, you know, as a kid, you don't really know you're doing it, but I think back and that was my skill training. Right. And then roller hockey was a massive part for me growing up I wish roller hockey would be implemented a little more across hockey I know people complain about the skating stride and messing up but there's just so many beneficial things to roller hockey as well and skill training for kids so um, playing different sports like you said focus for baseball is different than hockey and there's just a lot of different attributes you could learn from different sports
0: completely agree could not agree more there I think that's a perfect way to end it Stevier, thanks for doing this. Everybody check out the Clever app, and that's going to do it for episode 12 of the Hockey Collective Show.